No one can serve two masters, for he must either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They sow not and reap not and gather not into barns, and your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more than they? But who among you can add one foot to his growth, even though he worries about it? And why do you worry about clothing? Look at the lilies in the field, how they grow. They do not work, they do not spin. But I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory was so clothed as one of them. If then God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the stove, would he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore you should not worry and say, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? The pagans seek all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. Then all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Yes, today we are continuing to talk about Matthew 6, 24 through 34. Continuing within the context of Kierkegaard's The Lily in the Field and The Bird of the Air, three devotional discourses. Um, the discourse last week was on silence. This week, the second discourse is on obedience. Um, this is called, No one can serve two masters, for he must either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. The reason he focuses on this is because this discourse is going to focus on that either or quality of obedience. Um, and before we really delve into the text, um, I'll begin with a little bit of an anecdote. I'll try to keep it brief and nonspecific. So as I've been thinking about silence and thinking about how this character of silence can, can lead us into obedience, um, let's start here. I recently moved quite some distance, um, about six months ago, started a new job. It was kind of in a transitional phase and initially it was all intended to be a sort of temporary stop along the way. Um, and I've held in my mind, certain ambitions, certain goals, certain ideas of where I might go next. Um, and in the time that I've been here, during this period which I had intended to be temporary, I've been embracing or trying my best to embrace this kind of silence, this sort of um, devotional, meditative, 
inwardness. Um, and in that process, one of the one of the sort of elements of this silence that was sort of discussed last week is self-emptying. Kierkegaard spoke in the last discourse. Uh, he wrote, forget your will, which is something that he views as happening in silence. And he talks also about having the capacity to fold up all of your plans into less space than a period. So I've been thinking about busyness and ambition and the sort of fantasies that we that we involve ourselves in of oh you know i'm doing x so that i can work towards y so that my life can look like z and i tend to get very wrapped up in these things of my mind often goes somewhere else i'm thinking about what's next i'm thinking about where i want to be i'm thinking about who i want to be and I think that can detract from my own capacity to be present. And so in thinking about silence, part of it is, again, that literal silence, the sort of quietude and stillness in the physical sense but also in the mental or emotional or spiritual sense, not, not getting sort of carried away, just allowing oneself to perceive and be aware without sort of imposing oneself. Uh, and so I'm thinking of this idea of kenosis, of self-emptying, um, I think for me and for a lot of us maybe, there's a tendency to, I think we kind of grow up, or at least this has been my experience, in a culture where you pursue things because you desire them. I want to be this. I want to do this. I want to have this. And it's almost very, very strange to think about because it feels like in so many ways we take for granted this idea that we should do things because we want to do them. Or we should have things because we want to have them. And I mean, it seems too obvious, but, but if we follow down this track, of course we become sort of servants of our own desire. Um, and I think part of silence is developing the ability to forget desire uh, and to, to simply be attuned to what is about. Um, and I think too, uh, about this sort of dialectic of earnestness and jest, right? So I think one of the, the elements of ambition is it can be sort of uh, conceited. It can, it can be pretentious. It can be self-important. 
Uh, and I think I, my own ambition has all of those qualities. And so when I think about jest in the Kierkegaardian sense, I'm thinking about keeping in mind that before God, all of your ambition in the sort of final calculation is next to nothing, right? The things that we can actually do in this world are so sort of minuscule. And so being able to treat them with a seriousness, a weight, and an importance while recognizing their inherent smallness at the same time. It's not quite a contradiction, but it's this, it's this, you could maybe call it a balance. I don't know that that's the right word, but you hold to these two ideas at the same time. Um, and I think this ties into the idea where you work to sort of quiet your own ambition, your own desire, and be prepared to listen for the voice of God. That leads you into obedience, because only when you are silent and able to hear the voice of God can you do God's will. So, he begins this discourse talking about that either-or. The either-or for him here is either God, as he says, either God or, well, then the rest is unimportant. He also holds it up as a love-hate dichotomy. And when he talks about love and hate, he brings up this idea that for us, in human terms, love and hate are very far apart. And when we think about other people that we know, we might be able to think of people who we don't either love or hate. We imagine that there's all of the space in between love and hate. Um, and he envisions it as being not so with God. Either we are unconditionally obedient or we are disobedient. There's no... We'll get later into the, this idea of half measures. That's not a way to be with God. It's not a possibility. Um, you, you fully embrace God and become obedient to God or else you despise him. Um, and the analogy that he uses is really cool, I think. So again, going back to silence, he imagines that silence as a vacuum and so he gives this image of how in vacuum if something falls it falls much quicker because there's no air resistance right so that air resistance is the third factor um, that interferes with the fall, that slows it down. And in the silence, the solemn silence that occurs before God, there is no third factor that can keep loving and hating at a delaying distance from each other. The two, the two become joined. Um, there's no space between them. So, 
He says, if you are not unconditionally obedient in everything, then you do not love him. And if you do not love him, then you hate him. And this is, let's see, this is extraordinarily challenging. Uh, and I think one of the difficulties of having and embracing and developing a subjective experience of faith is a tendency to be tempted to let ourselves off the hook, so to speak, to recognize that maybe our faith demands certain things of us, but in recognizing our own imperfection, we sort of make space for disobedience. And if we make that space, if we allow that space, if we're not really self-critical and, and serious about our faith, that space grows. Um, and so I think it's very important that we're we're recognizing obedience as unconditional because if, you know, people talk about cherry picking when it comes to faith. That's something people like to, to discuss a lot. And I think we have to recognize that what our faith demands of us is complete adherence, not merely when it's convenient, not merely when it's pleasant, not merely when it serves our earthly interests. He says, too, that one teaches obedience by being obedient, whereas we often think of students as, as sort of existing in a role characterized by obedience. He places teachers, he places us as teachers in that role. If we are obedient, if we demonstrate obedience, that is how we teach. Um, now, one of the things, and, and we'll sort of, he gets into this more at the end, but his approach in all three of these discourses has, he's in a sort of poetic mode, right? So it's not a purely rational discourse. And what he will get into at the end of this particular section uh, is the idea that obedience leads into understanding rather than following from it. So in the gospel, with this image of the, the lily and the bird, we are being drawn into obedience, not through some kind of rational argument, but through the power of the imagery itself, right? And so I'm gonna read a section where he talks about seeing obedience in nature. And you can hear that he's writing with a real sort of poetic quality that is not argumentative. It's not, it's not, he's not following a train of reason. Um, it's, it's much more intuitive and beautiful than that, I think. So he writes, the sighing of the wind, the echoing of the forest, the murmuring of the brook, the humming of the summer, the whispering of the leaves, the rustling of the grass, Every sound, every sound you hear is all 
compliance, unconditional obedience. Thus you can hear God in it, just as you hear him in the harmony that is the movement of the celestial bodies in obedience. Okay, so one of the problems that I have here, that I struggle with, is this separation that seems to me in a certain sense to be arbitrary. In other senses it may not be arbitrary, but at least in part it seems like an arbitrary distinction that he makes between humans and nature. Because it seems, if you approach it rationally, that he is saying everything that happens in nature is obedience just by its, by the very nature of nature it is all obedience and yet so much of what we do is disobedience and that distinction raises in me the question of what would the implications be of Christianity for other beings. What is our relationship to nature? How do we fit in? Or are we... I, I, Christianity, so much of it is rooted in this idea of separation from nature. Um, and so it's kind of something that we have to wrestle with that for me at least does not entirely cohere with the way that I think about the world um, in other respects. So I think as I approach this, even though I find it challenging coming from the perspective of reason, I try to approach his writing here with just that appreciation of its sort of poetic quality and and with a focus on finding the truth that is true for me right and recognizing just just being in that subjective space where i am in certain respects liberated from reason uh, and am able to sort of be seduced by truth. So it's, it's, it's challenging, I think, for me. In certain ways it's intuitive, in certain ways it's, it's different than what I'm used to. But I do appreciate his um, sort of sensibility in this set of discourses. So he talks, he continues to talk about... Uh, no half measures, um, the importance of total obedience. Uh, and he has, I'm going to run through a couple little quotations here because he has some very, very beautiful imagery uh, about the lily that I think is very poignant and really sort of broadly applicable to how we understand ourselves, how we live our lives. Okay. Quote, if the place assigned to the lily is as unfortunate as possible, 
so that it is easy to foresee that it will be utterly superfluous all its life and not be noticed by a single one who could find joy in it. If the place and the surroundings are so desperately unfortunate that it is not only unsought, but is avoided, the obedient lily obediently submits to its conditions and blossoms in all its beauty. One of the reasons this is striking to me is because I've also been thinking, and again, ties back to silence, about this need to be seen or to be heard in a very human sense. Um, being with others and feeling a need to center myself at times. And it seems like a simple idea, but I think it's, it's very radical to embrace silence in the sense that one says, I don't need to be seen. I don't need to center myself or make intrusions um, into one space or another. I can simply be in silence and be okay with being unnoticed if that's what lies in store for me. I think that need to be seen is a very normal feeling, but I think it's something that is worth challenging. Um, what the lily says, what he imagines the lily saying or thinking in these circumstances is, quote, I myself, of course, have not been able to determine the place and the conditions. This is not in the remotest way my affair that I stand where I stand is God's will. So when I talk about my own silence and my own being in this particular place, by what feels like random chance, um, and sort of allowing myself to, to lean on others, to embrace others, to really try to see other people, um, and to be with other people, earnestly, I think it comes to, I just love this line, that I stand where I stand is God's will. It's this sense of radical acceptance of, I don't need to go somewhere else. I don't need to do something different. Everything that I could need is with me at all times, is right here in front of me. And I think what silence allows us to do is to see the things that are right before us, to see the people that are right before us, whatever our circumstances might be, um, to recognize it in a way that we can't when we're caught up in the noise of life, the busyness of life, or the indulgence of fantasy, whatever it might be. So, he says also, Only by unconditional obedience can one with unconditional accuracy find the place where one is to stand. And if one finds it unconditionally, then one understands that it is unconditionally a matter of indifference if the place is a dunghill. I love that. Again, this idea of 
presence regardless of circumstance. Um, now here, another beautiful similar image um, in connection with the lily. Quote, if it happens as unfortunately as possible for the lily that the very moment when it is to blossom is so unfavorable that the lily can with near certainty predict that it will be snapped off at the same moment, so its coming into existence becomes its downfall. Indeed, it seems as if it came into existence and became lovely merely in order to succumb. The obedient lily obediently submits to this. That, to me, I find, I find that extraordinarily beautiful because I think that what it touches on is this feeling that I have much of the time um, of a certain Sisyphean futility uh, of the sort of struggle of feeling that things are doomed. Part of it might go back to the, the recognition of the smallness of our own actions and of our own impact. Part of it is the sort of looming presence of, of death or of suffering or whatever it might be. Um, and here, again, not through any reasoned argument, but just through this, this beautiful image, of the lily blossoming, we we can sort of experience and embrace this idea of submission to what will be. Um, and as he writes, quote, in the lily's place, a human being, or we human beings, would surely despair at the thought that coming into existence and downfall were one excuse me, that coming into distance and downfall were one, and then in despair could prevent ourselves from becoming what we could have become, if only for a moment. I love that. We pre prevent ourselves from becoming what we could have become, if only for a moment. This is where that, that question of when we have that question of what's the use, of why bother, here it is. I think in a lot of ways, we can think about existence or coming into existence and coming out of it, or coming into existence and downfall as being one, as being united. Call it two sides of the same coin, call it whatever you want. But, but imagining this blossoming and being snapped at the same moment. And then to hold to that beautiful idea of potential and spiritual potential, even, even if it's only in a moment, even if, it's, even if it's the briefest moment destined to go unnoticed on this earth. So he says we need to get to a, the space in which we say, I cannot do anything else. I cannot do otherwise. Now, this is something I think about a lot in terms of the shape 
the course of my own life because so much of what I do and and I'm going to use this word here, the choices that I have made don't actually feel like choices. It feels like I have a sense of responsibility, of duty that may lead me to do X, Y, and Z. It could be a lot of different things. But, but to a large extent, it feels like it's not simply, oh, I've chosen to live my life this way. I feel that sort of pull that I associate with faith, um, that pull of, of necessity, of divine will, call it what you will. Um, maybe, maybe this is a helpful example, maybe it's not, but someone I really appreciate is Dorothy Day, and one of her commitments was to voluntary poverty. Now, to be in a place, to live in a place where there are people who are poor, to live in that place and to be wealthy strikes me as an impossibility. It is not a choice that, that it is not on the menu of possible choices for myself. It feels, it feels like from the beginning it's ruled out, it's impossible. Um, and I think to have wealth and to see poverty while possessing riches, there's this sense in which you are implicated in that moment. And for me, it does not feel like an option. And so I think this is one specific sort of example, but I think in all things we need to get to this space where we have that feeling. And I think all of us probably feel it in one area of our lives at least, that, oh, I can't do otherwise. Um, it wouldn't be possible for me to violate this particular commitment, whatever it might be. Um, Kierkegaard goes on to talk about God's infinite patience. And he goes back to the idea of children, uh, envisions God as a schoolmaster or something of the sort. And our mistake is that we are children who should be learning from God, and yet we delude ourselves into thinking we are grown-up people. And I am especially uh, receptive, I guess, to this particular image, because it's something that I think about a lot. I feel childlike in a lot of ways. Not in, not in every sense, but in a lot of ways. And I feel a lot of times very confused and overwhelmed at the world, at existence. I feel like Oh, I hardly have a better grasp of it now than I did when I was a child. Like, it still feels, I still feel the magic of the world, and I still feel that it's sort of unfathomable in a lot of ways. And I don't tend to be someone who's very, who's very, uh, 
practically oriented. Um, and so I feel like in a lot of respects, I don't have my life sorted. I don't feel like I, I figured everything out, I'm in control. And I think there are plenty of times when I see this very clearly in other people too, and have this recognition of we're all dealing with our faults, we're all dealing with our, the, the really minuscule limits of our own knowledge, right? And, and there's a sort of comfort in that, that a lot of times the world seems very serious. Um, and that seriousness seems to demand that we know how to deal with it. And I think none of us do. And I realize that sounds like gross exaggeration in one sense, but I think there's some truth in it that, that you could say we all have our blind spots, but I think the blind spots are probably larger than, than what we can see. Um, I think, I think it's important to recognize we do what we can, but ultimately we need to be humble about what we know and what we understand. Um, and in describing God's infinite patience for bearing all of our faults as individuals, Kierkegaard describes that patience as a comfort but under a terrible responsibility. Um, which again, I really like because there's this sense in which we should not despair. I think it's very easy to, when we think about unconditional obedience, it's an absolute demand, it's an infinite demand, and we're destined to fall short at least at times. And it can be too easy, I think, to despair at our own fault, at our own sin, at our own ineptitude, however you want to describe it. And I know I do that a lot. My own failures, um, I'm, I'm very self-critical. And so I think it's important that we are reflective and committed to our learning, um, in this case, learning from the lily and the bird, so that we, we hold both of these ideas in our head, right? That we're comforted by God's patience, but we recognize it also as an infinite generosity and not to take it in vain, not to abuse that patience. Um, So unconditional obedience means no ambivalence. And when you lack ambivalence, Kierkegaard writes, quote, you are sheer simplicity before God. I love that idea of being sheer simplicity before God. And it sounds so incredibly beautiful and attractive. Um, and of course, as is my nature, and perhaps yours, 
probably the nature of a lot of people, I have a great deal of ambivalence about a lot of things, but specifically within the, the uh, area of faith. Um, I have a lot of ambivalence. I have a very real capacity for cynicism, um, which is not one of my better qualities. Uh, and I think the problem with this ambivalence is it allows space for temptation and it allows space for disobedience. As Kierkegaard writes, quote, just as the devil is sharp-sighted in connection with ambivalence, he becomes equally blind when he looks at simplicity. I think that image is a very good one. Um, and it's challenging. It's very challenging not to feel ambivalent, not to feel doubt about our commitment, about our submission to God's will. Um, and that ambivalence is very much tangled up with sin. And so I think simplicity, again, I keep wanting to return to that, that initial idea that I started this week with of self-emptying, of becoming I almost imagine it like a sort of becoming transparent, allowing things to pass through me. Love, material things, whatever it might be, not, not clinging, just in sheer simplicity, being willing to be a vessel of God's will and a vessel of love and and having a sort of generosity that almost doesn't see oneself, where the self can disappear and simply be experienced in relation, right? Self is not I, myself, as an individual, walled off from others in the world, but as someone who finds the experience of being in relation to God and in relation to the neighbor, the people around me, with God as the middle term in all of those relationships. So, as I mentioned at the beginning, here is the idea that Kierkegaard closes us out with. He says that the gospel understands that we do not go from understanding an idea to being obedient but it's the other way around now i think this is critically important it's important for this particular discourse but i also think it's tremendously important for any conversation about faith that understanding comes out of obedience and I think this is something that I've spent a lot of time with that I'm learning uh, through reading Kierkegaard through my own experiences but that that I think one of the hurdles for me in coming to faith for so long I was entirely irreligious uh, 
was that I could not understand it. I couldn't come to it if I couldn't understand it, and I couldn't understand it. So, so there was no chance of me becoming a person of faith. Um, and then coming to the recognition that it's lived. It's not something you read and you say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I'll do that. I mentioned last week this idea of throwing yourself off a cliff and instead of falling, feeling held. Um, it's something that's beyond understanding. It's experiential. And so I'll just, I'll just read here. This is what he envisions the gospel saying to us with, with the way that it uses the... So, going back to the idea of poetry, of his poetic sensibility here, that's aligned with the way he views the gospel here, right? It's focused on the image of the lily and the bird. It's not rational. It's beautiful. Um, so here's what the gospel says to us in his mind. Quote, Come, let us go out to the lily and the bird. Look at the lily and the bird. Abandon yourself to this sight. Lose yourself in it. Does this sight not move you? But why is this silence so solemn? Because it expresses the unconditional obedience with which everything serves only one master, turns in service toward only one, joined in perfect unity in one great divine service. So then, let yourself be gripped by this great thought, because it is all only one thought, and learn from the lily and the bird. Now, one of the things I really like about this is it sort of has this element of like a non-dual experience. Um, this understanding of everything as one and this unity as we've, we've read in this discourse is something that can be seen in nature. At least Kierkegaard envisions it that way. We see it that way in the Gospels. Um, so we look to nature for an experience of God, and we sort of see in that unity something beautiful, something seductive. So this is so important because we're getting at truth through the subjective, through experience. We're going out to see the lily and the bird and to learn from them. And if it's challenging for you to take in or to accept what Kierkegaard is writing or what we read here in the Gospels, if it's challenging for you in the same way that it's challenging for me, I would encourage you to just work on this Work on allowing yourself to be sort of carried away by the subjective, of allowing for subjective experience. I am someone who tends to diminish the value of my own subjective experience. And within the context of faith, I'm learning to appreciate it more and to embrace it more. And I think that is really critical to understanding what he's getting at here to really allowing ourselves to be moved 
And in that feeling of seeing the lily and the bird and being moved by them and, and the mode of their being, in that, in that experience, in that feeling, lies truth. And we can follow that truth into faith. And again, that faith, what we understand of it, comes through obedience, comes through the lived experience. We cannot have any grasp of Christianity until after we commit ourselves to it. It's not the way that we think about most things. A lot of endeavors in our life, we have to be convinced, oh yeah, I'm, I want to do this for reasons X, Y, and Z. That's not the way that Christianity works. It's not the way that faith works. You live it, and in the experience of living it out, you realize it's truth. I know that I find it every day. Since I have really started to, to come to Christianity in earnest, and in my sort of, even in my meager attempts to live rightly, to live Christianly, I am very aware with each day of its truth in, in even the most minute of my experiences. So, I will leave it with that. I will leave it at that. Um, the next discourse, the final one in this trilogy, if you will, is on joy. Joy is a challenging one, but we will get to that uh, next time. Until then, thank you very much for listening. I will talk to you later. God bless.